Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm I'm good. I'm I'm recording mere minutes after stepping off the train from DC to New York. I'm here. I'm at Manhattan Institute, Mothership, HQ Prime, whatever the heck you want to call it. One of my colleagues' books came out. Yes, we gotta get him on the show. He's 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 doing like the daily show. We gotta we gotta get him to take a step down to do our show. But I'm here for I'm here for one of our, my colleagues' book releases. So I'm getting to enjoy the 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 might and majesty of New York City once again. Oh, lovely, lovely. It's 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 I'm 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 contractually obligated as a player in Manhattan Institute to say that New York City is the greatest city on earth. What 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 makes it great, Charles? I can I can feel you fishing for the segue. I would say it's the people, Aaron. I would say it's the people and their talent. Oh, interesting, yeah. interesting, talented people. So so Charles, why don't why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about today? I feel like it's it's it. You see, this is why we have you on the show is so that you can execute these flawless transitions. Yeah, today we're talking about what I guess is an institution. I mean, the the substantive topic today is is talent. Although I think you can think about the market and talent, or uh, the labor market and talent's role in it. If you want a, an institutional peg for the episode, we like to have those. Talent is sort of a. I mean, it's a, it's, it's it's a tricky concept. It's it's vitally important to commercial individual success, but it's hard to define. Never mind identify. What makes talent? How do we recognize it? What's the right way to think about it? Is talent something that can be learned? Is talent something that is only recognized? How important is talent to economic success, again, both to the individual and to the company, but also to the nation or the world, humanity as a whole? Our guest is an economist and a co-author of a new book on the topic to which he has brought significant both personal experience and also research background. We'll get to him in a second. I guess before we do that, Aaron, how are you? What are you interested in this week? What's your what's your take on this topic? Yeah, so so what fascinates me is that there seems to be a kind of almost Polybian cycle in institutions where if a startup or company is very successful, it tends to grow, but as it grows, it tends to become bureaucratized. That's just the nature of big institutions. They have to be bureaucratic. But our guest argues throughout a very fascinating new book that bureaucratization, there's kind of an inherent tension between bureaucratization and finding and identifying and making optimal use of talent. And so, you know, if you buy that, that suggests that it's, you know, very easy for startups and other ventures to become the victims of their own success. They start out with a group of really good people, then they grow, they grow, and then eventually, you know, they maybe are coasting along, but they're not quite as good at getting the fresh blood, the new ideas. And so what I'm interested in is a kind of, you know, what are the sort of institutional and policy levers behind this? Is it just a, you know, natural process? Or is there something about the way that we've chosen to kind of structure the market and set up society that causes this cycle to happen? And then B, relatedly, you know, how can institutions avert this kind of decline that I think they tend toward? So with that, Charles, why don't you introduce our guest? Sure. Well, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll hop real fast for my my thoughts, which is you know the conversation about talent, both in our guest book and also more generally, is often sort of is often situated in specific sectors of the economy. I think a lot about talent in Silicon Valley. I don't work there, uh, and so I'm you know I, I have a little bit of a selfish focus today because I'm interested mm-hmm. in how to think about talent in in my sphere and sort of in the public policy intellectual sphere. Although our guest works there too. Are are is that the same kind of talent as entrepreneurial talent? Do they map? Is there is there is there an innate talent, a G for talent? And if not, if if they're different sets of skills, how do you think about searching for people with impact in the policy space, people who are people in, in impact in an intellectual environment? Lightweight questions. A great guy to discuss this all with is our guest. Tyler Cowan is the Holbert L. Harris Chair of Economics at George Mason University and serves as chairman and faculty director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason. He writes a column for Bloomberg View, has contributed and has contributed extensively to national publications such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Money, as well as many scholarly publications. He is the author of too many books to count, including most recently Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives, and Winners Around the World with co-author Daniel Gross. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Happy to be here. Let me first go back a small amount in time 
while New York City probably has more talent than Tokyo, as a city, I think Tokyo is far greater because of its oh, because of the metro system. You can be in one part of Tokyo and have access to so many other parts so easily. And, and New York City only wishes it could replicate that. Well, that that I think is going to we're going to come back to that because that gets at sort of the network effect dynamic that you talk about in your book. But to start with sort of a big picture question. Yeah. So, so the, 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 this is one. I mean, this is one that I took away from the book as 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 sort of a. I don't have a random question. When I read when I read the book, the first couple of chapters are focused on interviewing proper. And I guess my impression is that you view professional interviewing as an adversarial endeavor. That basically the 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 job of the other person, of the, of the person of the interviewee is to reveal as little information as possible. And your job as an interviewer is to suss out as much information as possible given this adversarial stance. Do you think that's accurate? And if so, why do you think about it that way? Why is it that a useful way to think about interviewing? I don't view it as adversarial. So the first rule of interviewing is that you as the interviewer should be trusted and you achieve that by in fact being trustworthy. And that will get people to open up. That will get you better matches of individuals to jobs. Now, there may be some adversarial component in, in the sense that some people want to be hired into jobs they don't deserve. And you do then need to figure out that they don't deserve it. But for the most part, it's a cooperative endeavor you should be nice, you should be friendly, you should smile, you should volunteer true information about yourself, and you should really care. But that said, at the end of the day, if it's a good job, you're going to say no to far more many people than you're saying yes. There's something adversarial about that. But you'll make a better decision if, in fact, you are trustworthy and to the point. Well, you also, I guess maybe adversarial is not quite the right word, but you you say that it's useful to kind of throw people off a little bit with questions and ask them things that are unpredictable and force them to think. Can you talk a little more about that? I would first start with the distinction between structured and unstructured interviews. Structured mm -hmm. interviews are most interviews, especially in big companies. They need to hire a lot of people. The interviewers are maybe not that talented. So you just do things by the book. That's fine. It's quite mediocre. But in most of those situations, you don't have any other choice. But if you're doing, say, a philanthropic award or making a large venture capital investment or trying to hire a CEO or trying to you know, hire someone, Ryan, to run Manhattan, you know, it's not a structured interview. You're assessing the entire person. You want to know how creative they are, how energetic. And in that case, you want to get the interactions away from prep as much as possible and see what the person is really like. Yeah. I mean, I think in some senses that 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 stands that, that's what I'm thinking of when I talk about adversarialism is is that you have to you 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 have to throw people into a position where they have to be authentic. They have no other they have no other option than to do it. Um, but I, I see so many cases where people they're not even trying to keep anything secret. Just by their rote routines, they go through a structured interview. They present the same anecdotes. They sound bored. They are bored. It's like oh, tell us about your job market paper. Then they tell you, it's all very phony. At the end of it all, you don't have a sense, say, in economics. Can this person actually think like an economist? So there's plenty of interviews at the margin that should just be much more about substance and actually conversing and far less about trading back and forth prepared material. Right. I mean, I think the, the framing here is that, that interview is an epistemic problem, that you're that, that, that given limited time and, and uh, limited information about the other person you're trying to uncover, is this somebody who will be useful to me 20, 10, 20, 30 years down the road? I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, within that framing, how you think about what you mean by talent. Because talent's sort of an abstract concept. I alluded in my introduction, say, you know, is is do you think about talent for something, talent, uh, talent in a specific domain, or do you think that there's a general purpose in talent in the sense of general intelligence, quote unquote? We define talent as the ability to come up with and carry forward new creative ideas. It doesn't have to be Thomas Edison or Einstein. Simply someone telling you, your assistant tells you, oh, you should have this person. You should have Tyler on your podcast. That can be a new idea. So most jobs involve that kind of talent. But if the job really is standing on an assembly line, making the same motion many times in a row, uh, our book isn't very helpful for that. That may be negatively correlated with some degree of imagination and curiosity. So talent's about capacity for innovation. Correct. Okay. In our I treatment. Mean, yeah. And I mean, in some ways, this is this is part of a broader... I mean, people use the phrase marketplace of ideas as a metaphor, and you could say this is almost about the market for ideas. Like, how do you get ideas? 
be a people capable of generating them. Right. And when creativity doesn't matter much, simply looking for conscientiousness is a very good rule of thumb for starting. But that's not what most of our book covers. <laughs> right. Right. Well, so, so, so. One thing I think we should maybe just just foreground is, you know, there's some stuff in here that that's I think relatively intuitive to people, but you also have some findings that are are not intuitive, and that you yourself and your co-author say were surprising. What were some of the findings about talent that surprised you in the course of researching this book? Well, what's intuitive you depends on where you start. Yeah. Both Daniel and I were surprised at how little IQ matters for achievement. Yeah. I don't think that's a surprise to everyone, to be clear. To do various jobs, you have to be smart at some level, and that level can be pretty high, depending on the job. But above that level, IQ and success barely correlate at all. So determination, sturdiness, willingness to practice, many other features will better predict success than just more smarts. And I think a lot of smart people are surprised by that. I think the less smart people just need to learn that smarts actually do matter at all. That's right. surprising to me. The, the the smart people that I know, by and large, don't think IQ is a thing, or they're they're they're, they're very skeptical about an intelligence that can be measured. I think many people on the left will say that. I don't find they actually believe it when it comes to their children, their children's test scores, who are the other kids their kids hang around with. They really want their kids to hang around with other smart kids. That's fine, but those people believe in IQ no matter what they say. Right. They were real belief. Well, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, you mentioned they want to hang around, have their kids hang around with other smart kids. Can you talk a little bit about the, the network effects with IQ, because this is an interesting part of your book. Well, IQ in its import and most abilities, they're magnified greatly when you're part of some team that allows you right. to be more effective. So if you think of Bill Gates as super talented, but throw him into the Amazon jungle alone, probably he dies at any age. But you give Bill Gates a team of 20, 30, 300, 3,000 people, he's going to do amazing things with that. So, so much of talent evaluation is figuring out how someone fits into your puzzle, because it's how they work with the other people that will account for most of their productivity. So I want to sort of shamelessly take advantage of the time that I have interviewing you. Often people come to me and they say, where are the young, smart, policy-oriented people, how do you find them? And I go, if I knew how to find them, I would have already found them and tried to get them to come work with me. How do you run a, you run a think tank, you're, you're, you run, Mercatus is different from what I do and what Aaron does every day, but it's, it's in a similar space. How do you think about talent in the, in the world of policy ideas, whether it be a think tank, whether it be in policy journalism, that sort of nebulous space? How do you think about how to identify talent there? I'd like to first hire people to do a paper or some kind of project with us and see how they do, because demonstrated behavior reveals far more than any interview. And then if that's a success, consider doing something more permanent with them. So that would be my preference. Referrals and networking are extremely important. People just coming out of the blue, often they lack context. They're not less intelligent or less hardworking. But very often, they don't understand something like the DC policy world or the state government policy world. So just figuring out what context does a person have bringing to this job, I find in this particular area, a very useful question. I mean, what one of the things you didn't just mention was credentials. How much I hate credentials. At, okay, yeah. So so let's let's talk about this. What What's what? wrong with credentials? Well, a lot of people who work with me, they value credentials more than I do. So, you know, mine is not the only voice in my institution, even though I am the director. I think so many smart people today are seeing credentials as overvalued. Someone like Sam Enright from Ireland, he just writes. He hasn't finished his undergraduate degree. I would rather have Sam than almost any PhD. Now he might end up with a PhD, but he would be ready to do things now if he weren't busy going to school and with his own projects like the Fitzwilliam. So more and more in today's world, credentialed people, they're typically pretty smart. Obviously, they'll have a good work ethic, fairly conscientious, but they're pretty boring. They're pretty conformist. And for what I want to do, I feel they're less well-suited to that each year. Right. Why, why do you think this credentialism has taken hold? It's an easy way to make decisions. No one can blame you. The people with the credentials, like they are pretty smart and pretty hardworking. You can't 
get a PhD from, you know, Yale without having something going for you. But at the same time, maybe it's due to educational polarization, but there is more conformism in our world in numerous ways. And that, to me, makes credentials worth less. But look, if you want to hire conformists, and for some jobs you do, credentials could be worth more. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I think about, and, and, and I think about some of the folks who work for Mercatus, and Robin Hansen is somebody who came in a very indirect way to academia, as I understand it. And somebody who sticks out as sort of, what's it that I'm looking for? Not the opposite of low-hanging fruit, sort of somebody that was that most employers would have missed, and Mercatus didn't miss him to their benefit. So when you we think were of, the only offer he got, and I, well, I was convinced we should hire Robin. I thought Robin is a genius. It, it was obvious to me at the time that it was irrelevant that Robin had a PhD in economics. He was really quite self-taught, and when he writes a paper like on grabby aliens, do you think he learned that at Caltech? No. So. Uh, Robin is a good example of that strategy working. So what so what is what is the quality that he has that made him an, an obvious hire to you and not to anybody else? And Robin is sort of lost for, for for the context for our listeners, Robin Hansen is is one of Tyler's colleagues at Mercatus. He's written about really everything under the sun, a very thoughtful, intelligent guy, but who is came in a very indirect way to, to academia. But what what was the missing? What was the missing what was the quality that people were missing? Extreme curiosity, willing to be a polymath, willing to ask questions that most people would consider insane, outrageous, or totally outside of the box, and just sticking with it. Robin's been with us now. Oh, I've lost track of how long, but right. well over 20 years, closing in on 30 years, and he's how, still active asking questions every single day. I mean, how? how so obviously there's always going to be a tendency in institutions to like people who conform and who flatter the higher-ups etc do you see any broader though policy choices or structural forces that have kind of worked to depress that sort of nonconformity and to punish it well starting at k through 12 there's way more homework which i consider to be a big negative mm -hmm. i do feel we need some homework but there's far too much that encourages conformist people to get ahead. And every step of the way, there's less free speech in academia than there used to be yeah. in a de facto sense. It's easier to get canceled. So social media have a mixed influence, but certainly some negatives. And uh, the world as a whole, partly because the stakes are higher. Like if you get tenure at a top 30 school or you're ensconced in like a top five or six think tank, your life is really good. And you don't want to risk that. So like, what is it else you're hoping for? Right. And that too encourages conformism. What, what about, what about the risk of, of lawsuits and sort of the, and, and not just, not just with civil rights stuff, but just the generally kind of litigious culture of the United States. It discourages employers from hiring weirder people, but I'm not sure it's a major force discouraging scholars, writers, public intellectuals sure. from being less conformist. Sure. So let, let me let me ask sort of a, a, a meta question, uh, not even a meta question, but a, a model question. It seems like the the conformist approach to hunting for talent, the the credential approach, et cetera, is it's 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 a low lit, low risk, low return investment strategy, right? If I if I hire exclusively PhDs, I can bet these people will be basically fine. Uh, they will be the top, but they probably won't be the bottom. Whereas if 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 my filter for hiring were I want people who are high openness, low agreeable, I will get a bunch of I will get a couple of unicorns, and then also I will get a lot of people who are jerks. Does that does that meta model make sense? And do you think that we should be you know the 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 latter model is sort of a reductio? But do you think that that is the thing that we are missing? Are people not taking enough? Is, are people's hiring portfolios not risky enough? I wouldn't accept exactly that framing. So. I like people who are low in disagreeableness, but most of them are not jerks. Like take Robin Hanson. He's not a jerk. He's a super nice guy. Alex Tabarrok, Brian Kaplan, a lot of my immediate colleagues with very strange ideas, nonconformist. Most of the people we have hired are really quite nice and pleasant to spend time with, and they don't get offended easily. So if, if you're not that nice, they'll still be nice to you. So with that caveat, I think what you want is genuine curiosity and drive and as we say in the book, what's agreeable, what's disagreeable, it depends on context. You want people who contextually can be disagreeable when they ought to be disagreeable, but also are quite agreeable and pleasant most of the time. And I see this in CEOs also. Most of them are charming people. Right. There's, there's sort of, I think, an, an interesting 
tension that runs throughout your your book, which is that on the one hand, you do see this kind of conformity as being a problem and you worry about people like Robin Hanson being kind of, you know, denied various opportunities and people overlooking them. On the other hand, you talk all about how women and minorities and many of the people whom folks like Robin Hanson allegedly offend also aren't being, you know, picked up and their talents aren't being appreciated. So could you talk a little bit about both how how institutions have failed to kind of spot the talent of, for example, disabled people, women, minorities, and then, you know, how to maybe navigate the tension between that and the fact that there are these kind of, you know, weirdos who might be really good to hire, but who also, you know, tend to make offensive comments or, or be a little off color that can then create sort of, you know, workplace Hiring someone like Aaron or me. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> There we go, Charles. When it comes to the interview setting, I have noticed a disproportionate number of women minorities and some number of other groups, they play risk-averse strategies because in the past they have been burned and it may or may not be explicit prejudice, but there are implicit biases where there is less room for them in which to mm -hmm. operate. Fewer tones of voice they're allowed to take on. In the case of Obama, he realized like he was not allowed to really be very angry on television that people would read this the wrong way. So Bush could get angry in certain ways and Obama could not. So that means when you encounter various classes of candidates, you're receiving less information. A bunch of filters are turned off. And what we tell people in the book is like, don't give up. A lot of the talent is there. Don't just say like, I don't know what to make of this person, put them in the pile. You know, dig more deeply because anyone can hire someone who looks great right up front, but it's the people where you have some doubts or are not so sure that can be your truly best hires. And just to be fully cognizant, how much for a lot of different groups of people, it's hard to act themselves and feel comfortable. Just to give you an example with Robin, the, the, when he visited us for his job interview, he's like, oh, give me some of your papers to read. I gave him some papers. A few days later, he wrote me back with comments on the papers, like how terrible they all were. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is great. We got to hire this guy. But look, a lot of people aren't w willing to do that. His comments were polite, but they clearly said, oh, these are bad papers. This is all wrong, you know, not in a rude way, but some people would consider that rude per se. But I thought this is awesome. But you also need to realize a lot of people won't feel comfortable doing that. Right. So Aaron, Aaron wrote a when he was in when he was in college, he wrote a he wrote an opinion piece that I come back to over and over and over again. The thesis of which was, in essence, accusing me of talking over people and otherwise being disruptive and aggressive in seminars for anti-Semitism. Because my culture, my cultural values are precisely having, you know, pr precisely being the section asshole to use the technical term, being aggressive, being in your face. But I do think that. There is a there's a this more general hostility to the kind of intellectual aggressiveness, which can be polite, but sort of aggressiveness per se that that we've been talking around that 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 is more common. What do you think you 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 alluded to sort of some of the causes when you talked about social media, when you talked about the returns to conformity? Do you think that there are other determinants of that sort of style going out of style? I think feminization. So there are more women in prominent positions than ever before. That is very, very much a very good thing, but it does mean that norms change. And I think at the margin, a lot of places should go back to the more aggressive style. Like MIT seminars used to be aggressive. Now they're mostly quite polite. They're probably too polite. So we need to meet somewhere in the middle. We don't all have to be like University of Chicago, but still I think there should be more aggressive challenges than what we're seeing in a lot of academic seminars right now. Right. So I, I think this gets back to sort of my, my question, which is, it, you know, it does seem like there's a tension here, right? You know, if you want to actively get more women in institutions, but you acknowledge that that trend has driven kind of the feminization of our norms, I, I mean, how do you strike the right balance? Because it seems like ultimately, the more qualified women, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be like really politically incorrect. It just seems to be sort of the logical, you know, consequence of the view that if, if, if feminization is what's driving 
some of the these pathologies where no one wants to really debate aggressively, well, then like, so I think someone like, for example, our friend Richard Hanania might ask, well, like, why should we be trying so hard to get more women, right? Like, what's your, what's your answer to people like Richard, who sort of push this line of argument kind of far in the direction of just, we shouldn't really care about, you know, recruiting women or, or minorities? I would put it this way. In the past, and even still today, there are many men, especially senior men, who give women a tougher time mm-hmm. than they do other men. So when that's the norm, it's no surprise that women will react against a somewhat aggressive tone in seminars, because it is a disadvantage for yeah. them. So a lot of the adjustment has to come on the side of the senior men who are not treating women equally or fairly. And then I hope we can have a better equilibrium somewhere in the middle. But to have the answer be, well, you know, we don't want to bring in women. Look, that's more than half the human race. The the loss there would be immense. Yeah. 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 I want to go in a slightly different direction. Earlier, you defined talent as capacity for, I I paraphrased you to say talent is really about, about capacity for innovation. Is talent something that can be learned under this definition? Like, can I teach somebody to be more talented or is talent mostly innate? You, you, you look at character traits in the book and I think you go back and forth on the research, but I'm, I'm curious about, you know, if I can't find talented individuals, can I create some? I think practice is extraordinarily important. How much does innateness matter? It depends on the area. So there's no way you can practice your way into being a world top 10 chess player if you weren't somehow born for that or a top swimmer or a basketball player. But for most jobs, I think of practice and learning and environment as more important than what you're born with. Again, at least above some minimum level of intelligence. Do you think, do you think that if, if, if I'm in a, and this is a very practical question, if I'm, if I'm looking for talent outside of the market and I find lots of people who have half talent, who, you know, I, my, my job is sort of a weird intersection. I do writing, I do numbers, I do any of a number of different things. You're familiar with this world. If I find somebody who's good at one subset of those, is it a good use of my time to teach them another subset of those skills? Or should I say, should I hold out for the guy who knows everything? If I find someone who is very willing to practice and learn, I'm typically quite keen on hiring that person, have a long time horizon and think that will pay off. One of my favorite interview questions is, to improve what you do, how is it that you practice in a manner akin to how a classical pianist practices playing scales? And I love hearing what people say. If they're not even thinking about it, you have to wonder. Maybe it's just what you see is what you get, which may or may not be enough, but their upside potential is correspondingly limited. What are the, what are the answers that you get for that? Yeah, good question. <laughs> it's a good question. I'm thinking about my own answer. A lot of people are just flustered at first, and that's fine. So if you're asking a tough question and you get a bad answer, it shouldn't put you off. It's a sign your question is inducing a lot of variance, which can be a positive for the question. But people will will stumble about and they will, you hope, converge on some routine they have. So it could be, I write every day and I show what I've written to my friends and colleagues. That's a good answer, say for a writer. If they are a public speaker, you know, there's an obvious set of answers along that direction. If they're a manager, they could talk about building out a small group of peers with whom they talk about management and get feedback and so on. You're not necessarily asking to see if you agree with them. You just want to see how do they think about themselves? Like, do they even really apply analytical categories to themselves at all? What's, Don't mind if they're flustered. That's fine. What's, so what's, what's your answer to the scales question? It depends which of my jobs you're talking about, but simply writing every single day for decades would be my most obvious beginning answer. But then traveling around the world like a crazy man, trying to speak to as many people as possible, that's in fact a kind of practice. It helps my speaking, it helps my listening, helps me crack cultural codes when I interview people. So that would be a second tier answer. This is my this is my apologetic for the horrible click factory writing jobs that anybody wants to break into journalism has done at some point is if you're if you have a job where you have to write 10 articles a day for clicks, you actually get much better at writing very quickly. Either that or you lose your job very quickly. That's correct. Yeah. More people, if they do, you know, say statistical work, they might have very specific answers and that's great. Well, so so a lot of this book is pitched as advice to individual employers who are conducting, say, interviews or trying to hire the best people. But I'm curious how... What do you think the implications of the this analysis are for policymakers, right? What are the broader 
structural forces that have, I mean, you mentioned excess credentialism, but what are some other broader structural forces that have kind of, you know, hamstrung the search for talent? And what, if anything, can policymakers do about them? I feel our governments at various levels have made the credentialism problem worse. They may not have even started it. But if you look at state governments, recently Maryland announced an initiative that a lot of the ordinary jobs in the Maryland state government no longer require a college degree. You do have to pass through a process. This to me seems a huge step forward. Other state governments basically have not done the same. The federal government has all sorts of requirements. Our scientific funding bodies, you know, strongly discriminate against what is sometimes called amateurism. So in terms of policy, simply to find every instance of credentialism we can in our governmental structures and re-examine them critically, maybe not right. abolish them all, but man, the, you know, the thumb on the scale is way too much in the credentialist direction. Everyone should have a master's for something and half of them tend to bar and drive a, an Uber. What's the point in that? <laughs> let me let me well let me ask a let me ask an effect size question. I mean, my you know I think I think earlier you gave an answer about credentialism, which was something like the 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 way that I heard the answer was once we control for the the effects of the effects of intelligence, intelligence doesn't matter very much. And once 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 you hit a minimum level, lots of other factor matter, factors matter, and that seems true. But credentials are still, as your colleague Brian Kaplan has made the point. I think quite effectively, credentials are mostly valuable for signaling sort of where you fall in the skills distribution. So if you if you if you say there's no, we're not going to hire people based upon their degree, I think you will still end up with a with a skill with a degree distribution in hiring that looks substantively pretty similar. So my question is, what do you think is the effect of what is the what is the magnitude of the effect of that thumb on the scale? Is it if we if Mar will Maryland's uh, employee first force be 10% less college educated, 50% less college educated, 5% less college educated. How do you think about the magnitude of that? I don't know the magnitude, but I strongly suspect it will be greater over time because elasticities increase with time. So if you just feel locked out of the system to be trained in some ability, but you still don't have the degree, you're just not going to do it. So the notion of, well, someone manning a toll booth has to have a four-year college degree, that is just crazy. So in many cases, credentialism is an appropriate signal for just actual, where are you in the skills distribution? But a lot of other times, it's a creeping poison, the result of bureaucracy, looking for a paper credential, someone wanting the decision to be made easy, and we could have far, far less of it. And there's societies such as Germany, which is entirely well-functioning, more or less, where there's far less reliance on college degrees of a particular kind. And I mean, that has its pluses and minuses. But in fact, they managed to hire plenty of talent, talented people to perform plenty of jobs. And it just doesn't have to be the way it is in America. Right. I, I mean, one thing, so I don't know exactly how standardized testing works in Germany, but my, my guess, though, is that, you know, they do have standardized tests in various ways that help determine where people are, are placed. And I know certainly France and other societies have that. Backed very early. Right, right. And so, so, so. Okay, so you're anti-excess credentialism, but it seems like there's a distinction here between credentials and kind of valid metrics of intelligence, which, as you say, does matter, you know, insofar as you need it to be above a certain point. So given all that, what do you make of kind of the, the push, at least among some progressives, to eliminate standardized tests? And do you think that that is going to seriously impact the market for talent, or are we just going to find other ways of, of kind of measuring the same thing? We might find other ways. I would say this, in the current environment, eliminate, eliminating standardized tests is a disaster waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. It's pro-opportunity, pro-lower income groups, smart ones can show it. But that said, in an ideal world where I could rearrange all the coalitions as I would wish, and the, the whole woke thing was not a threat, I have some sympathy for the view, a little more than you might think I have, mm -hmm. but I certainly would never want to do it now because I know what will replace it would be a nightmare. Right. I would but say this about credentials. There's a whole new credential, and it's called spending your whole life reading the internet in a smart way. And it's a really important credential, and no one counts it. So I would be much more pro-credentials if we actually counted all the credentials that matter. We're just not efficiently measuring. Right. Yeah. It seems telling that 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 
Ross Douthat, whom many people, including myself, consider to be the best columnist at the New York Times, routinely cites anonymous right-wing Twitter accounts. Exactly. Uh, people yeah. who maybe went to college, but it's not even where their knowledge body comes right. from. And Ross right. himself, I'm not sure what his degree is, but I think he just uh, went to Harvard as an undergraduate, yeah. right? It's right. like a literature or something. Yeah. So like, okay, Harvard's a big deal, but he's no PhD and he might be the best columnist in the world. Like, what's that telling us? Let me ask. So, so credentials is one barriers to innovation, which is, I think, really what we're talking about. Something that sticks out to me about Silicon Valley is that there's basically large quantities of investment money sloshing around. It's it's relatively easy to get your big idea funded it's harder now than it was six months ago, but relative to much of the rest of the economy, there's a very active investment culture. You've done some work trying to sort of move that model over into investing in ideas. Emergent Ventures has done this to some extent. Can you talk about, do you think that in general, we need to have more of a, a VC mindset or a VC approach to identifying talent outside of big tech? And if so, what does that look like? Absolutely. So in a lot of venture capital firms, it, you're not looking to build consensus. You just want to see if some people are very enthusiastic about an idea. And if they are, you do it. Nonprofits don't typically work that way. There's committees, there's levels, there's layers. You need consensus. You're worried about what the current employees might think and so on and so on. So I think we should be more like VC and have tried to do this myself with Emergent Ventures, as you mentioned. And I think it's possible to do it. I think we've shown that. You just have to want to do it. That sounds trivial, but it's remarkable how few people really want to do it. That is the scarce input here. Yeah. So so do you think that there are, and this comes back to Aaron's question of policy, do you think that there are structural barriers to that? I mean, earlier in the conversation, one one explanation for why there are so few people who want to do it is risk aversion, as we talked about earlier in the conversation. But do you think that there are, in the same way that there are, government can impose other barriers to innovation, do you think that there are structural or legal barriers to that sort of higher risk, higher reward model? I don't think the law is the main problem. I think the main problem is a lot of individual human beings, even in an unregulated setting or well-regulated setting, they do not want the good. Like, why don't more people have Beethoven and Mozart? You can theorize, but most people don't. That's a defect of sorts. They don't have to have it as their favorite. They might still prefer bluegrass, but they don't get it. So when it comes to hiring or taking chances you know, in philanthropy, a lot of people just don't really quite want the good. They want the good enough, and that's very different. And that that does seem to though have an interesting political implication because if most people don't like the systems and norms that conduce towards kind of the optimal identification of talent, doesn't that suggest that there may be a tension between kind of democracy and kind of and optimizing for talent acquisition? I'm very pro-democracy. I don't view democracy right. as the problem. I look back earlier in the 20th century, and you see how often very young people were put in charge of things. You can start with the founding fathers, many of whom were in their yeah. 20s. You know, Groves, when he ran the Manhattan Project, or different university presidents, sometimes even their 20s or 30s and 40s. And now today, the average age is so much older. So just as a society, we're failing to keep that dynamism, and we're settling for less. We're favoring age, we're favoring credentials, we're not taking chances on very young, active people. But Silicon Valley knows better, right? Like right. a startup, you say you're 23, you, you know, bring it on. Let's see, what's your idea? Right, but like, I guess my point is that, you know, right, Peter Thiel can do this, but, you know, most people aren't like Peter Thiel and indeed, I think, would resist a, a world where more Thielian norms were kind of imposed in their day-to-day -day life. Right. Like, a world where what Hutch was it Hutchins? He was 28 when he ran the University of Chicago. Yeah. That world is not impossible. Sure. I get it's hard to go back yeah. to it, but there's nothing stopping us from moving in that direction. Sure. Let's but start it, with the 48 year old. Right. 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 Wouldn't wouldn't that wouldn't wouldn't one implication of this though too be that there are kind of these established groups that benefit from kind of the risk aversion uh, and conservatism? And right, it seems like you you have to. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine to say, well, we should all just like not do this, but you know, we know that they have an incentive to like the system. What do you do about the kind of entrenched stakeholders who don't want it to change, right? I'm hoping to raise awareness and show right. people if you do it differently, not only is it right, but you will do better. And mm -hmm. I think it's going to 
make significant ground in the next 20 to 30 years. We'll see, but I am not pessimistic. Do you think this is a a sort of big picture, long-term question, but it seems like a lot of the, you wrote a, you wrote a, you wrote a book 10 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that called The Great Stagnation, the thesis of which was in part, uh, many of the productivity gains of the 20th century come from picking quote unquote low-hanging fruit. And we have picked a lot of them. We had at that point picked a lot of low-hanging fruit. It seems to me like that was coexistent with a cultural model that was relatively less risk averse in the in the dynamics that we've been talking about, the the sort of corporate welfare model of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Do you think that picking, you know, getting productivity gains back up again requires more risk taking than we're currently doing now? I would say since the pandemic, we've been in flux. And we had one area, the vaccines, where we took enormous risk and it paid off. And it saved, you know, many millions of lives. So I see hope on the horizon now, something that hadn't happened when I wrote the book. But one thing I've thought since I wrote the book is the problem is not just risk aversion, but just bad management in science and also politics. And we've just become more tolerant of that. And that too, I think we can reverse. Like how many scientific labs are well run? It's not a serious study of that question, but when I ask around, it seems almost all of them are. Like, is that fait accompli? Are we so hopeless and pathetic? We can't make half of them quite well run? Pro I just don't believe that. What? Are you pro or anti-IRB? Mostly anti. I don't think there should be zero IRB, but they have way, way gone past their regulatory powers. And mostly they're, they're an outrage. Interesting. Okay. Right, right. Interesting. I was going to say, I think this returns to Aaron's point at the, start of, at the start of the conversation, which is that when you talk about science specifically, a lot of that is just institutionalization. The, the expansive cost of journal or the cost of journals and the gatekeeping system involved with journals, the review process, the RV process, all of this is just sort of, I, I, I think, can be understood as good ideas for quality control institutionalizing themselves and sort of consuming more and more of the resources as they try to prove their own relevancy. That was really a comment more than a question, but would you like to respond? This is a, sort of a comment on your comment, but I Great. think the importance of new institutions cannot be undervalued. That often the elder groups are hard to change, but something new comes along. And you look at some areas, there are new think tanks at a reasonable clip, though I wish it were higher. New universities, it's a pathetic record, right? Yeah. There's so, so, sort of new small ones or new right. weird ones, but with real presence, we've stopped doing that. And I think that's part of the problem. Why can't we, with what, 330 million Americans, whatever, like we really have no new universities? Come on, people. That's insane. So does that mean that you're, you're relatively pro the University of Austin, at least conceptually? I am on their advisory board. I am pro people taking experiments right. like University of Austin. Right. But I want many more. If they're the, the only one doing it, right. I'm less optimistic than if we have 30 such ventures. It also, I mean, one thing that I think is just worth highlighting here is that all of these ventures do require risks. And, and indeed, that means that a lot of them are likely to fail. So what people will say in response to the University of Austin is, yeah, but that they'll point out a bunch of problems or reasons why it might collapse and they say, ha ha, see, you know, it's likely to collapse. But I, I mean, I think an important implication of, of your argument is that, yes, like a lot of these things are likely to collapse. That's why we need to do more of them, right? I completely agree with that. When I hear about the potential for major failure, often I get more excited. It's like, well, here's some big signs up that have kept other people away. Right. This is a, a very particular question. What is your failure rate with Immersion Ventures? Well, a lot of the people we've given money to, we still don't know, especially the younger people. If you're like a child of an Asian immigrant in Ontario, Canada, and you're 17 years old, and you apply because you want $10,000 in computing credits, and you get the $10,000, I don't think I'm going to know for a long time, maybe not within my lifetime, if that was a good investment. I feel very happy making those bets for the strong candidates, but we don't know the failure rate. I would be surprised if the success rate were above 25%, though. Right. Well, so, so I think we want to wrap up soon, but I wanted to kind of bring this back to some of your fun interview questions. I'm sure you've gotten this before, but... Yeah, but, right. but, 
But so, so one of the ones I really like is which of your beliefs are you most likely wrong about? And so I wanted to ask which of your beliefs about talent are you most likely wrong about? How elastic the supply of talent is. I believe it is highly elastic and that over the medium term, we can do a great deal to augment how much talent we have. But it's possible that increases in the supply of talent, like say the Renaissance, right, or the Enlightenment, that just might be due to luck. Rather than being elastic with respect to any set of factors you can actively manage and control. Maybe that's my most vulnerable belief. Interesting. Interesting. But we have to try anyway. And I feel it's not going to harm the chance for luck, right? Luck tends to be right. somewhat endogenous. Well, I mean, Tyler, you're obviously a very talented person. And, you know, your talents do not just include identifying talent, but all sorts of other things. So I kind of want to ask you the, the question in a more generalized form, just because I'm curious before we go to concluding thoughts. Which of your beliefs, period, do you think you're most likely wrong about? It's well, there's so many of them. But look, I think the Navy reports of UAPs, we used to uh -huh. call them UFOs, have a 10% chance of actually being alien drone probes. <laughs> <laughs> I called it. Now, it could be much lower the chance or much higher. But I think it's really pretty likely I'm in some manner wrong on that. But if I knew in which direction, I would revise. But that, to me, is a highly uncertain belief that I hold. It's very fragile with respect to evidence that could come along any day. Just think of which, which, which of my beliefs should that have been. Yeah. Um, I'll think about it. Aaron, do you, do you have, I don't know, summarizing, closing? We, we covered a lot of ground very quickly, which is great. Do you have, but do you have, uh, do you have a summarizing thought for our, for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I come away thinking that to the extent that our, our government and our policies and our institutions can be re structurally reformed to encourage risk-taking, and to maybe reduce some of the penalties for taking risks, kind of unnecessary penalties beyond that, those that are just intrinsic to the risks themselves, that would be good. And that might be kind of the, the when it comes to the institutional level, maybe the, the right framework to think. And also, you know, this isn't a particularly new, new thought, but so Tyler, one of the episodes we did a while ago was about dating apps, and there was a little exchange in it where Rob Henderson explained that men with master's degrees get twice as many likes on Tinder and other apps as men without them. And I went on this whole rant about how that's ridiculous because master's degrees are fake and don't actually tell you anything. So I'm very glad to hear that you agree that master's degrees are overrated, which brings up an interesting question that we'll have to address another time about how we can reduce credentialism in the dating market. Uh, you know, there's a woman I know, she's somewhat well-known, who has pledged to me she is using talent as her dating guide. She recently split up with her significant other and is taking talent as a dating guide, which is not how it was intended. But I'm curious to see for her how it goes. Interesting. That is interesting. And um, she is very attractive and very smart. And I, I'm curious. I feel like right. biasing the experiment. Well, well, Your well. chances of success are high. Well, well, my 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 Twitter DMs are open. So <laughs> I would have written a, a longer chapter on kindness had I known the book would be used for that purpose. High openness, low agreeableness. Yeah, I mean, I think you know my 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 takeaway from the conversation. I mean, I have a number of different takeaways, but the the first that comes to mind. You know, my entree into the book is that I spend a fair amount of time trying to think about how I can identify talent better as somebody who has been doing it for far less time and does it far less professionally than Tyler does. But I think what I've taken away from you know, taking away from this conversation in part is that Tyler, you're kind of an existentialist um, in in the regard that you know, to some extent, you could pick heuristics. To some extent, you can sort of say these are qualities that I should look for, but the most important part of talent search is is it's just sort of like the leap of faith in the in the Kierkegaardian sense. It's like mm -hmm. you have to be willing to take a lot of bets. Many of those bets are not going to pan out. The failure of those bets is not actually a sign of failure per se. Necessarily, it can also be uh, an indicator of you a, a learning function. And that's very informative vis-a-vis -vis how I think about talent search, how I think hopefully listeners think about talent search. And fits with the broader conversation we we're having about risk aversion and are we too risk averse as a society and or as individuals. 
with that. I would say this. It's not only a book about finding talent in other people. It's a book about finding and understanding your own talent. Mm -hmm. That's the number one talent search you do, right? What am I good at? Uh-huh. With those, with I guess with those thoughts on the table, we should do some fast recommendations. Aaron, do you have a, a recommendation for our listeners? I do. It is unfortunately not really directly related to this conversation, but well, I guess the, the the segue I'll give is that you know I'm a journalist, so I'm always on the lookout for talented journalists, talented writers, and I recently came across a piece by Brian York in the Washington Examiner. It's called What Bert. Benny Thompson did on January 6th, and it talks about a very fascinating episode from the 2004 election in which a much smaller group of Democrats, but nonetheless a, a group of Democrats, effectively deployed the exact same tactics that hundreds of Republican representatives would deploy you know, 15 years later in the 2020 election to try to you know, effectively overturn an election. It it's an exam it's an example of the talent of finding extremely eerie historical parallels. It is also an example of the talent of owning the libs, albeit, you know, in a in a kind of smart, sophisticated way without being too heavy-handed. So I recommend that piece to everybody. I'm gonna go ahead and plug one of Tyler's older books, Economist Gets Lunch from 2012. So, you know, but still applicable today. I read, which I which I actually only read about 75% of. And the reason I stopped reading it is because my child was born and all of a sudden I didn't have time anymore. But first 75% was very edifying. But, you know, I think it's a, it's, 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 it's a book about how to think 20% more intelligently about your, what you eat, how you eat out, what that process looks like, how to recognize quality in unexpected places. I like to eat and I use its advice all the time. It's not direct. It 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 fosters. It teaches the talent of eating more intelligently. So I suppose in that way, it's related. In addition to being written by our guest, Tyler, do you have any recommendations for our listeners today from your own work, somebody else's? On Netflix, Bordigan, the Danish TV show, season four. It's all about how power corrupts. Highly recommended. Much of it is set in the very beautiful Greenland. Eight episodes. A plus. Okay. What? How is it spelled? B-O-R-G-E-N, Borgen, Power and Glory, it's called. Okay. There's three early seasons, which are kind of social democratic, a little bamby-pamby. And somehow in season four, it's just really hard hitting. They woke up, they've been something pilled or other, like Danish pilled. <laughs> and they know everything about politics, hypocrisy, amazingly well. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll have to check it out. I encourage our, our listeners to do so. Two. Thank you, Tyler, so much for joining us today. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, CVs that you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. 